Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. My name is Dr. James Rudd, and I'm an associate editor at Heart. I'm delighted to be joined this time on the Heart Podcast by Professor Victor Meyer Schoenberger, who is a professor of Internet Governance and Regulation at the Oxford Internet Institute, Oxford University. Victor, many thanks for joining us. Uh, most welcome, James. Delighted to be here. And Professor Meyer Schoenberger. Uh, gave a fantastic keynote lecture at the recent British Cardiovascular Society meeting up in Manchester. And he is an expert in big data and its implication for healthcare and actually many other industries. Victor, I wonder if we could just start by, if you could give us a definition of uh, what you mean by big data. Well, of course, James. A lot of people, when they hear uh, the term big data, they think about uh, new analytic algorithms or particularly uh, technical tools to do some magic with data. To me, big data is something much more fundamental. To me, big data um, is a way by which we gain a new perspective on reality, a better understanding of the world around us. And based on that, uh, we gain insights into the world and how it works that we couldn't have gotten before. And we're talking... I guess about uh, if we if we're applying this to healthcare uh, relevant to this audience, we're talking about I guess clinical data. We're talking about imaging data, maybe data derived from sensors that that patients or uh, volunteers might be wearing, and all of this being combined and then analyzed in in novel ways. So we're talking massive massive uh, databases, right? The kind of the kind of data that we haven't been used to dealing with in individual small studies. Indeed, uh, in, in the medical field, as in many other fields, including in social sciences, we have been looking at relatively small uh, sample sizes. Uh, that is going to change. We used uh, random samples uh, in the past uh, because we were unable to comprehensively collect and analyze data. So we just uh, took a small sliver of it. But as our ability to collect and analyze data is greatly improved and the price of doing that have come down, we can now look at data in a much more comprehensive fashion. And that means many more different data sources. Uh, that means um, a, a lot more data per source per second, if you want. Um, and uh, therefore, in relative terms, uh, we capture more data about the phenomenon we want to understand and study than ever before. Oh, I see. OK. And I guess this also has fundamental uh, implications for how we derive uh, the scientific questions that we're interested in and during your during your talk at, in Manchester you you mentioned this a kind of almost moving away from the hypothesis driven uh, research that we're currently doing were you able to talk a little bit more about that now uh, absolutely the, the the sort of very classical traditional way uh, of uh, scientific discovery uh, for, for quite some time has been to come up with a hypothesis based on a theory and, and then uh, use uh, collected data and the analysis of that data to, uh, to either falsify that hypothesis or to quote-unquote verify it, although uh, with uh, Sir Karl Popper we know that there is no true verification possible, only falsification if at all. Right. Uh, and, and what we do is uh, is therefore... Uh, based on our ability to come up with a really good hypothesis. Uh, and, uh, of course, if the hypothesis is wrong, which 
we oftentimes don't concede or want to concede to ourselves. Um, we have to come up with a better hypothesis. That's a very kind of trial and error type uh, approach uh, to scientific discovery. The promise of big data in a way is to use data and the analysis of data in order to provide us with some, some insight what kind of hypothesis to come up with. Uh, in other words, we use the data in order to uh, improve our ability, uh, our human ability to come up with the right hypothesis. It's like uh, looking at a, a, um, at a haystack and hoping you know, that you can get the needle out of the haystack uh, when in fact in the future we will be able to look all the way through the entire haystack. Okay. Are you able to give us a concrete example of something where big data has, has made a difference? I know there's a very nice one that you mentioned in your talk about Google. Uh, I think this is probably a few years ago now, but trying to track uh, influenza outbreaks. Yes. Um, uh, what, what Google did, the team at Google did, uh, was to use historical uh, f flu data from uh, in this case, the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta and the United States as the public health authority in the U.S., uh, and to use uh, search requests that Google had received uh, over the years. Google receives about 5 billion search requests uh, every single day and saves them all, uh, and also where and when they came from. And the idea was to use, uh, to, to come up with a correlational model uh, between the historical flu data and just what people searched for online. The hope was that just by looking at what people search for, uh, one could uh, predict in real time uh, the, 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 the spread uh, of the flu, whether it's the seasonal flu or uh, something more specific like the H1N1 uh, flu virus a few years back. And uh, after testing 450 million different models, uh, Google was able to find a model uh, that was uh, indeed doing a, a very fine job on predicting it. Um, but um, the, the concrete hypothesis, that is, which search terms predict uh, the spread of the flu, was one that the Google engineers didn't come up with. Uh, that kind of a, a hypothesis was, uh, if you want, generated by the data itself. So that's fascinating. So the the, the researchers at Google... I suppose, derived what they thought search terms could be that patients or, or people suffering with early symptoms of flu might be, like runny nose or fever. But in fact, you're saying when they looked at the 450 million uh, searches, they actually found something more specific than a human on their own could come up with. That's fascinating. Indeed, what they what they actually did was to use the 50 million most frequently used search terms at Google because they said, we are not going to pick any winners here. We don't know which search terms are going to be the best predictors, so we take all 50 million of them. And, and that's very different from a, an approach that another colleague um, who alerted me to this uh, took some time before uh, using Yahoo search data where he came up with concrete hypotheses, concrete terms and then did a correlational analysis and found that there was a correlation. So he was happy with the correlation, but Google wasn't happy with just finding a correlation. They wanted to find the best prediction possible. That's why they didn't stop after they had found a correlation using some of their own hypothesis. They tested every single conceivable search term that Google received and found the best one. That's really fascinating. 
And in terms of in terms of cardiology and and problems that could be attacked and addressed by using this kind of big data approach, um, are there any that immediately spring to mind? I mean, I've heard uh, myself about the interrogation of electronic healthcare records, uh, integration of the demographics and blood tests and imaging tests, and then trying to determine uh, predictors that may not be apparent to us right now of patients who are going to go on and develop stroke and uh, and heart attacks. But are there any other uh, either research studies running or um, your vision for the future, how this might impact cardiology? Uh, in, in, in a number of ways. Uh, of course, we see that the, the channels of the ECGs, the number of channels goes up, the resolution goes up, so we generate more uh, data in cardiology already there. But as you rightly point out, the real magic is when we add additional data sources to it. G genetic information is obviously one, although we now know that just using DNA data itself may not be sufficient. Uh, we have to uh, go further uh, as uh, our colleagues at the uh, various onomics uh, fields have pointed out. And we need to add the uh, socio-demographic data uh, to it. In the Scandinavian countries, there are a number of initiatives now underway to use very good socio-demographic data and uh, so, uh, social data in uh, uh, patients' records and add that uh, in order to find uh, some very interesting and unusual predictors. So I see um, or f I foresee uh, a, a number of changes, not just sort of in the core area of collecting uh, ECG and other uh, data uh, in cardiology, but going much further afield as you have rightly pointed out. Yeah, no, that's uh, really fascinating and exciting uh, for the future. So who's actually going to do this work? We need to, I guess, buddy up with computer scientists and statisticians and, and folks like yourself who have a deep uh, understanding of this, because this is something that we certainly uh, are not being taught in med school. Indeed, and it's really uh, one of those um, very interesting moments where, you know, some decades ago, uh, the the medical sciences moved to the empirics-based, fact-based medicine going beyond initial uh, cases. Evidence-based medicine was the catchword uh, for, for many years. But evidence-based medicine is really most of the time based on relatively small sets of data. And so we're in, in medicine in, for a new revolution where we move to uh, large comprehensive sets of data, but they're aimed to go beyond uh, our view of um, patients as being average. So as we gather more data, intriguingly, we are able then to see differences in different individuals and therefore to personalize and to be uh, personalize our diagnosis and our treatment. So in a way, it's kind of counterintuitive. As we add more data and more cases to it, we're able to see not just the forest, but the individual patient again, which is quite a nice promise. Yeah, absolutely it is. And in terms of ethical issues, I suppose, as a clinician, this is always something in the back of my mind. Who owns the data? Do patients have to give explicit consent for their for their healthcare data to be stored? I mean, these are issues that will need to be addressed at some stage if they haven't already been thought about. Uh, do you have any information or, or thoughts on that? Uh, yes, you're absolutely right, James. We are just at the beginning of this, so uh, th there is a lot of trial and error uh, on the regulatory side, the policy-making side, and all these processes that need to be put in place so that we can collect the data uh, in order to gain the insights and at the same time ensure 
that patients' trust isn't being violated right. and that the use of the data is done in a responsible fashion. It seems to me that data protection laws itself are not going to be sufficient. We need uh, new ethical uh, codes of conduct here. Uh, and we also need uh, a, an agreement within the scientific community at large and the medical community in particular that uh, each and every individual research study collecting data should not just be shared in terms of the outcomes with each other, but also in terms of the data that was collected. And so we need not just open uh, journals, uh, but we also need open data in the research communities. Yeah, it's, that's a fascinating point because that I, I've also heard that that's being discussed far more widely than it used to be. For example, clinical trials sponsored by pharmaceutical companies. Uh, there's now a lot more pressure on the companies, as you say, to release the raw data rather than just the, uh, the curated results that have been derived from that. And I suppose the reason is that others may be able to reuse that data or combine it uh, in interesting novel ways uh, to generate deeper insights than the one study could do on its own. Indeed, and the the, the Dutch, uh, together with the British, have now pushed the European Union to actually uh, push in its uh, sponsored research programs uh, for uh, open data principles uh, in addition to open uh, access principles. That's a, a sea change because currently we still operate in data silos. Each and every research team has its own data and doesn't really like to release that. Uh, and there is no easy way to share data, no uh, processes, no directories in place where we can go and, and, and find data, uh, no standardized ways of, uh, of, of telling others what kind of restrictions uh, are attached to certain data sets. That all is going to change and therefore greatly facilitate this big data revolution. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much indeed, uh, Professor Victor Meyer Schoenberger, uh, for joining us on this episode of the Heart Podcast. And I will be sure to put links to your uh, various talks and uh, papers and publications online so others can, uh, can get more into this by uh, reading further. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, James.